Applications are now open for the 2022 Hurston Wright Writers Week retreats. Retreats this year are taking place at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia, Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and Howard University in Washington, D.C. To learn more and to apply, please visit HurstonWright.org. Welcome to the Black Writers Studio, a podcast presented by the Hurston Wright Foundation and hosted by Dr. Khadija Ali Coleman. The Black Writers Studio is dedicated to showcasing Black writers who are transforming the world today with their literary pen and creating a legacy for the culture. Dr. Tara T. Green is an African-American studies professor with over 20 years of teaching literature and culture. She is the author and editor of six books on the lives and experiences of African-Americans in 20th century literature and film. Her latest books are Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson and See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure During the Interwar Era a recognized academic leader who is dedicated to building diverse, respectful, inclusive communities in higher education, Tara T. Green is a self-described Black feminist, community-engaged scholar, mentor, and university professor. So I am very happy to finally meet you. We've been um, in communication via social media. This social media world is so wonderful. I'm one of the um, few people (laughs) that I love it more than hate it. Um, And I love it because it allows me to interface with spectacular people like yourself, Um, writers who are also scholars, um, writers who also bring to to the forefront um, folks in our history who for one reason or another tend to either get pushed to the fringes or completely into the shadows. And so um, one of the things that I find, I I am so excited to talk to you about is first of all, you have a book that was just released um, January, 2022, that I would love for you to talk about and in talking about that, I, I, I'm wondering if it will then transition to this book that you have that's coming out in a couple of weeks, because that's very rare where an author has um, books coming out in such quick succession. So let's first talk about this book, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Yes, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this woman I've been walking with for 10 years, Uh, Alice Dunbar Nelson. I met her in a college classroom when I was an undergraduate English major at Dillard University. And what fascinated me about her was, first of all, she had graduated from Strait University, which would combine with another institution to become Dillard University. Okay. She was an English teacher. She was a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. So these are, this sounds like me. It's, it's checking off <laughs> my profile as well. But I'm not a fiction writer. And she captured a picture of a historical New Orleans. And I was there in the 90s in New Orleans. 
And so it gave me new eyes about the city that I traveled around in. As a student uh, at Dillard, I had grown up on the West Bank of New Orleans. So um, she started her life in New Orleans where she was born in 1875. And um, I knew she was from New Orleans, but didn't know much about her. I wondered why she left New Orleans. And so the book is about finding out all of those whys. Um, why did she leave New Orleans? How did she end up married to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, who she would actually begin to correspond with? When she was quite young, she began publishing fiction. Her first anthology came out in um, 1895 and it captured his attention. So she would move from New Orleans. She lived in Brooklyn, New York. Um, she also lived in Wilmington, Delaware for a number of years where she made her career after she left Paul Lawrence Dunbar, then he eventually passed away. So that was her first husband. Then she would go to Cornell University and meet the person who would become her second husband. She would leave him not too long after she would marry her third and final husband. <laughs> and along the way, she had affairs with women. And she was trying to change the world through uh, being a suffragist and of course, still being a teacher and starting organizations. And, and so she was doing all these fabulous things. And I was shocked because I could not have known that had I not delved into the research. So, so tell me when you say that you met her, and I love how you say that, um, how you were connected with, with just her existence um, as a student while in college, what were some of the things, what were you merely introduced to her writing um, or was it little snatches, um, you know, for you to know what sorority she was a part of? Um, <laughs> what were some of those elements that, um, that you were introduced to? Because I'd love to know what did, what did exist, if not that much about this woman? Well, you know how anthologies are. So they gave us a brief biography of her. I can't even remember. I'm pretty sure I actually still have that anthology. So um, maybe after this interview, I'll go back and look at it. it was the Heath anthology actually. And so um, I don't know how much it actually told of who she was, but what stayed with me was the fact that she had graduated from the school that I would eventually graduate from. And so, you know, for Black people who were able to get an education in the 1800s, I also kind of wondered about that. What were their hopes? What were they wanting to do? And so um, I had to go back and learn about an era that I really didn't know much about. So her fiction drew me into that, to learning more. Um, about a city that for all intents and purposes really didn't have any black educated people as far as I had been told prior to attending Dillard University. My, um, we all have to take and probably still do, I don't know, this is the 20th century when I was going to school, <laughs> but um, Louisiana history in the eighth grade sort of stopped at the, um, the Spanish selling 
Louisiana to the US. <clears throat> and so what black folks really had to do with the Louisiana territory, let alone the state of Louisiana, I would never learn any of that. So that was the other thing is that I became fascinated by the fact that this woman had grown up not very far from where I had grown up on the other side of the river and had never heard of her before. Why did I have to go to college? And I suspect that if I hadn't gone to Dillard University, I may to this day have never heard of Alice right. Dunbar Nelson. Right, right, right. That That is fascinating. And so interesting that um, just that connection um, to you all attending the same school was enough to um, spark this interest. And that's so that gives such insight as to when we talk about the importance of um, children and young people seeing themselves in books and the in curriculum and the instruction, um, you know, you can't get more vivid an example of that. One of the things that, um, one of the words that you use in the titling of the book is the respectable life. And, and I just find that um, such an, an interesting, um, you use of that word as you you talk about the things that you learned about her, which really step outside of this really pristine idea of of respectability, particularly when um, applied to women, particularly during that time when we have such um, inaccurate, I think, ideas of what womanhood and, and how women existed in that in, in that time space. Um, and just in general, you know, here you have this highly educated woman went to college, um, was navigating spaces with a high profile husband, but also making her own mark. Also, um, just creating spaces for other people. When when you chose the what was the, the reasoning to use that word in, in particular in your title? Well, part of that comes from, so 10 years of revising. So I can't even tell you how many titles this book has had. And even <laughs> um, at the point of signing the contract to with Bloomsbury, we were sort of going back and forth. And finally, they said, this is the title. And so respectability or respectable had always been in that because it's really at the basis of the, um, of the book because I do talk about the politics of respectability, which it was just something that governed her life, but how she defined what that meant in her private life is worth that discussion. That, that was the book for me. To, um, that was the book that I wanted to read and it became the book that I ended up writing. That, that's amazing. So I, I then asked, did research for that book then lead to you for writing the forthcoming book? Mm -hmm. Because the topics, you know, when we talk about respectability politics and just as you speak a bit about the things that you learned in your research about um, um, Alice, it, are, we seeing, are we saying that um, and let me just read this this title because I love it. See me naked. <laughs> Black women defining pleasure during the interwar era. I love that. Mm -hmm. So this time period now is a little bit later 
than um, you know, Alice Dunbar Nelson's time period, but I, I see some intersections. Can you talk a little bit about how how the, the first book inspired the second book? Did it inspire it, or what were some of the intersections that went into um, writing this book as well? Yeah, they're definitely part of a long conversation for me. So they overlap. Um, so while I was writing and, and revising and still doing the research on the, what I call the Alice book, she changes her name three times. So I just decided that I was going to call her Alice. But um, See Me Naked, as people will find out when you read the introduction, actually is a quote from something that she writes in one of her diary entries. And wow. so, um, so I pluck that out of there and I start off with her intentionally. So um, to give this example of what is meant by nakedness and how, what does that have to do with respectability, which I talk about in this book as well, because these women redefine what that means because they live their lives in public. Um, and so the, the age difference isn't that much. Um, it might be because mom's Mabley and, and um, so you still have a couple of these women who are actually born um, along the time in which she's, she's alive. And so she's older by just a little bit, but generationally in terms of how she's raised as a Victorian woman who is still alive and very influential during the Harlem Renaissance, um, that's when these women began to emerge, those women being Moms Mabley, Yolanda um, Du Bois, um, Memphis Minnie, and um, Lena Horne. And so what I thought with them, I became really curious. So while Alice Dunbar Nelson is determined that she's going to give so much of her time and energy to uplifting the race, what I wanted to know was, what if a woman, a Black woman, is not necessarily only concerned about that? And so instead of talking about the erotic, using Audre Lorde's definition, which was guiding a, a, a way to guide me in my writing for Alice Dunbar Nelson, I used a definition of pleasure to talk about those other women who aren't necessarily interested in the race if the race enters with them, but they've already entered. So now what, how do I define myself according to what it is that I'm passionate about? I wanted to know what did that look like? What were the examples? And it turns out we have plenty. So those were four of the women that, that um, showed me a path towards that. That's so fascinating. Do you, did you come to this work already with a, a background? Because I, I hear in, in, as you share this, I hear so many um, discipline intersections, everything from women's studies, definitely history, um, some aspects of sociology and psychology. What, what was your back, what is your background or what expertise do you bring or or research interests did you bring to this work or did um, it emerge in just being analytical um, from a literature perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, my bachelor's, master's, and PhD, they're all in English. 
and African-American literary studies, my secondary areas is African women's literature. But I am in African-American studies. So the interdisciplinary work, I reside in an academic space that allows for that work to happen. And so, um, and growing up in the New Orleans area and growing up in churches, I don't just hear the stories. I feel them, I move to them. Um, so I feel like my being is interdisciplinary as a black woman from the South. And so my work reflects that. And what is sort of common that, that I draw from my training is the archival work. I'm very interested in the archive and it, it may be papers, but it can also be listening to oral histories or an archive of music. So all of that comes together. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. You know, I, I have, I have not in full disclosure to our audience. I haven't um, read your book became, it came, became very quickly between us meeting and then having you on the podcast. But I am extremely interested in, um, in reading these both texts, because as you just explained, I see so many extension projects that could be possible from this work that you've already done. And it's so interesting that you even said the music, you know, when I, I think of, um, you know, and when we think of the interwar era and, and looking at that specifically as, as you mentioned, being that period that included the Harlem Renaissance, you rarely, um, you rarely hear or, or have seen cultural um, examination of anything regarding Black women outside of um, us as entertainers, right? You know, where you have all of these images of the 20s or that early 1900 period with the flappers and, and, mm. and really understanding how white women have, you know, that was a, a period of ripening independence for them. But I feel that this is the first book that I've um, come in contact with. And just in the title alone, understand that it's examining something um, about Black women that is rarely examined, and particularly during this period of time. Mm -hmm. what, what, what were some of the, the standout pieces um, that you came upon and included in the book that really um, pushed against you know, it was hard, not necessarily hard for you to, to grasp or digest, but it was really stunning. And you were excited to include it in the book. I'd love to, to know about some of the things that were like aha moments or really um, new for you that you, you didn't anticipate when you were doing your research. Well, I wanted to, I was very intentional in who I chose. So, um, I remember one of the reviewers saying that I should take out Yolanda Bois because the book is really about performers. But in defining performance for me was something that was really important. And Yolanda Bois had to enact a performance as the daughter of W.E.B. Bois, And so uh, writing about her from her perspective, reading the letters, that Du Bois wrote and, and, you know, thank God for technology because we have access now to black newspapers that we don't have to go flying around, digging around, looking for things and hoping we'll find it. Um, those are now available to us as well as the 
digitized letters of W.E.B. Du Bois. I don't know how long it would ever take to really learn about the person Du Bois was. I mean, he was a layered, complex individual in all of his roles. People tend to only look at him in his roles as um, an intellect and a leader. And I was not interested in that. I was looking at him as primarily as a father, but also as a husband. So um, because being a husband obviously had an effect on his daughter. So learning about that relationship, which I kind of knew very little about because it just hadn't been presented to us was something that um, I had a lot of aha moments <laughs> in writing that chapter and I intend to do more with that. Um, and then there was reading Lena Horne, even though she, she writes it with someone, but her, um, her biography, her autobiography, Lena, and how she felt about being seen. She talks about that in a candid way. And that blew me away because that made me feel like I was on the right track. Um, hearing what people had to say about Memphis Minnie, whom I did not know about. I had written about earlier blues women, but she comes after my Rainey and Bessie Smith. Um, and, and she was born in Louisiana. So I was intentional about looking for women who had Southern connections as well. And what people would say about her, like there was this rumor that she cut a man's arms off in an alley. <laughs> hilarious that is hilarious <laughs> and That's laughing so with moms Mabley whom I remembered as a child but didn't know much about her either but she was just um the way that she got better as she got older and so I had fun I wanted to to also do something where I would have fun because I start I was still writing during the pandemic so that was important to me also Oh, wow. So both of these books were written during the pandemic? Um, so, of course, the Alice book started long before the pandemic, but I okay. did. I ended up finishing it, the last revision, during the, the first year of the pandemic, whatever year we're in now. And then I had started the year before the pleasure book. So that was written during the pandemic. And the last chapter in that book is, is about how I would come to have to define pleasure myself during the pandemic and connecting right. with uh, nature. Wow, wow. So it, it sounds like um, even when, how you define pleasure, it's not, um, you know, when I hear the word pleasure, and I don't know if that <laughs> says a lot about me, and I'm, but I'm sure I'm not the only one that it immediately goes to a sexual idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, it sounds like that when you're talking about pleasure, it really encompasses all these things that could also um, be called joy. So it's not necessarily sexually based activities or feelings but things that bring joy things that that bring pleasure but it's not necessarily within a sexual context would that be right absolutely so it's not just sex even though i do um, certainly discuss that but um but that's what i learned from the women 
um, how they took pleasure out of being performers and what that meant for them and what it didn't have to mean for the audience was something as well. So um, getting, a, getting in touch with pleasure practices became something that, um, that I wanted to learn from these Black women's lives. Mm. And, it, and, it, and it's so timely during a time where we are, it, it seems even, even more now than ever, we're exploring ways to have self-care and, yeah. um, and to engage in self-care practices, engage mm -hmm. in, in joyful experiences, because you know we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And for so many of us, we're, we're still having to operate within spaces where there is no normal, right? <laughs> and we're, we're making this up as we go along. So um, this is such a timely um, topic to, to really wrap, you know, begin to dig into. One of the things that I wanted to know um, or, or to talk about, I was really taken with how you even began to introduce the book where this idea of being a, a race person, a race woman or thinking about race, um, how you were specifically looking for people who didn't really, um, that wasn't their their forward facing um, platform, right? But I I know um, just from my own um, research and the things that I know about Lena Horn, because um, I heard her once in this interview on Pacifica Radio long time ago, where she was talking about um, how her grandmother did work with Paul Robeson, and as mm -hmm. we know, the the mighty Paul Robeson was one of the first, you know, civil rights activists, right, and this that we we can think of in the 21st century or the 20th century. But I would love to know when you looked at Lena Horn, what was it about her in particular where you didn't identify her as necessarily being on a, a race platform um, and and suitable for the, this work, this book that you were putting together. Mm -hmm. So. Um... I wouldn't say that the women weren't necessarily concerned about race, but it just wasn't their, their primary concern. And gotcha, so gotcha, gotcha. Um, by the time I got to the end of Lena Horne's book, where she helps us to understand what it was like to be the granddaughter of a woman who was also a, a active with the Black Club Women's Movement, who was just an activist that people loved and respected, when she got home, she would walk past her husband as, as Lena Horne describes and wouldn't even acknowledge that he existed. And so because they stayed in that marriage, because in public, they should have been married, but in private, they clearly didn't want to be married. So, wow. um, so the silence that respectability politics um, presses upon Black people, and, and my concern, of course, is with Black women is something that she had to grapple with. And she had to make decisions when she got married because she does marry a white man um, in her sec for her second marriage. She had to make a decision about that at a time in which she was a beloved woman of the Black community. Um, 
she was um, very close with and working with the NAACP, but she loved the white man. So she has a decision to make if she if she's going to put herself first or is she going to concern herself with the um, criticism or um, of the race, you know, the, the kind of canceling that may have happened <laughs> during that, <laughs> during that period of time. Right, right, right. That's so fascinating. I, I love um, everything about what you're um, sharing about the book, but what I love is how you're even approaching this topic. I just think um, it's just, it's genius frankly I think it's just very genius and very timely I, I would love to know were there any writers or any texts before that inspired you um, regarding the the way you shaped this book um, and, and and particularly with this book you know I I love the fact that you're saying that pleasure you're you're looking at pleasure as not only being sexual but it definitely is is a book about mores, social mores, and how women are really breaking through um, what these ideas of respectability, being a woman, all of that. Was there any foremother, forefather, foreperson who wrote or had a similar book or had something that inspired you when you were thinking about um, approaching this topic and shaping this book? It would probably have to go back to Alice Dunbar Nelson because I had been thinking about her so much and she dies in 1935 and she had all of these um, medical problems that she dealt with. So she wasn't very old when she died, but she put so much of herself into the work and she didn't get paid the way that activists may get paid today. Um, and certainly not all activists, but for somebody who was as well known as she was, she would have been making a pretty buck um, today. But, uh, and she worked, that woman worked. I mean, she was always out there and she was always writing. And part of what drove her to write was trying to send things out and maybe get a little award or uh, maybe a little change for, for something that she had written. But um, she also would write about her tattered clothes and how she had to pawn jewelry and um, her stepchildren and, and several of her nieces died. And so I became very curious about the impact of health um, and the lack of access for black people. And I hope that that would be an extension. So I think that her work certainly resonates. But in terms of scholarly work, I do want to shout out, uh, well, a lot of people know her work is um, Tracy Sharply Whiting, who um, in Bricktop's Paris, she writes about these Black women who, like Ethel Waters, for example, who, would, who left the U.S. to go to France. And you know, they had like $20 in their pocket. Um, wow. I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way in the world. <laughs> That's not enough to go down the street as far as I'm concerned. You know, like we have right. to have all the stuff with us when we go. That's so right. um the daring of these women and uh, the decisions that they made about their body and their art 
when they went to Paris. Um, and Lena Horne is one of them actually. So, so that the way that she put together that work and used the archives was an inspiration for um, the work that, that I've done as well. This is, this is so fascinating. I'm so glad that we had a chance um, to come together for you to be able to share about both of these wonderful books. Can you give um, listeners um, the details on where they can um, find um, Love Activism and the Respectful Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson um, and when we can expect um, See Me Naked to be released? So the um, Alice book is out. You can go to my website, www.drtaratgreen.com. That's D-R-T-A-R-A-T-G-R-E-E-N. And there are a couple of links there to the Bloomsbury website where it's a little bit cheaper, but you can get it from Amazon. You can ask, ask um, your local indie bookstore to order it as well. And then the See Me Naked that comes out of Rutgers University Press. So you can order from their work, their um, website, or you can go to other places, but it is, um, both of them are accessible. You, you shouldn't have any problems finding them. That's wonderful. And you know, um, I think by the time this episode airs, it should be released. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I would hope that folks will go to your website to um, be able to get both. Do you have any idea of what's coming um, down the pipeline for you in terms of any other books that are in the works that you can talk about or any interest that research interest that you have that you really would like to write a book about that you know, might be blossoming soon? Well, I'm still fascinated by Du Bois and his relationship with his daughter. So there's so much more that can be said about that. And I've also been thinking through some essays on, um, on gender and race because we've had a interesting uh, five years. I mean, a lot <laughs> has gone on. <laughs> and so um, I've been taking notes, so it's time to start thinking about that. So I want to move into other genres also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to what um, what comes of that. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the book on W.E.B. Du Bois. I love um, the angle in which you're approaching from the perspective of his relationship with his daughter. Cause I think that that, I don't think anyone's really explored that and that would be wonderful. So I, I, I wanna thank you so much for joining us here in the Black Writers Studio. And um, I, you know, I'm urging our audience to check out your website, to purchase your books. Um, and where can they find you on social media? I'm at Dr. TT Green on Twitter. Um, you can also look for me on Instagram. I think it's tarot.green. So I'm, I'm on both. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Black Writers Studio podcast, brought to you by the Hurston Wright Foundation. Learn more about Hurston Wright at hurstonwright.org. Thank you.